Todd, and, and um, let me introduce you to my family. We, we've known the, the New Hope, Ian and the New Hope community for over 10 years. Donna has done women's ministry here, and I've done men's ministry and whatnot. Thank you, Gerard. That's, that's good. So let me just show you my family here, maybe. Oh, I've got to turn it on. Um, well, can we advance it? That's perfect. Perfect. Yeah. The most dreaded words of a minister is, it worked in practice. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, just, uh, we're good. Good, good, good. Okay. No, no. There we are. There's my family. So, this was Donna and I's 31st wedding vow renewal. We did it, obviously, Art Deco style. And uh, so, that's Donna's parents who flew to New Zealand to, for the occasion here. <clears throat> We've been here now 17 years. This is our oldest daughter, Alex, and her husband, Mike. Uh, he's half Maori, uh, Kiwi, and they're now in Melbourne seeking their fortune. This is our, our youngest daughter, Nicole, and her husband, and their two children, uh, Aria and AJ. And then this is our, our third daughter, um, Julia, kind of our adopted-in daughter. We met her when we first got here, and she was pregnant. And her dad says, you've got to have an abortion. Or you're, you know, going to kick you out of the house. You know, how can you have a baby? You don't have a job. You don't have a career. You don't have an education. You don't have anything. And we didn't even know her. Somebody from the church brought her to us. And we, you know, what could we do? Say, well, good luck with that and pray. We said, no, if you want to have this baby, you can come live with us. And she did. So she went through the pregnancy and had little Isaiah. That was about 14 years ago. He's now at camp. And so we've kind of got uh, an enlarged family with Mercia, and they've got even a, a younger one there, and she's now married to Sam. So this is our, our mixed Kiwi family here. Uh, on the left is, is Jun, our adopted Kiwi son. Um, and so we've got a bit of a mixed family there, but we, we've, you know, obviously enlarged our tent pegs here in New Zealand. So the topic at hand, does anyone not have the notes that were provided? I kind of like that idea. Usually I don't preach with, with student handouts. I was a teacher, a high school teacher for 10 years in the States. And so I'm very much used to notes and lecture style as my ministry gift. So when I was young, I was a Christian when I was very young, like 10, 10 years old. And I remember trying to share my faith with people and explain my Christian convictions. And people would ask me sometimes, how do you know the Bible's true? How do you know it's reliable? Well, because it's God's Word. How do you know it's God's Word? Well, because it says it's God's Word. You know, that, that was kind of a circular reasoning that didn't have much depth to it. And so, what I want to do today um, is to give you some answers to those questions, to the validity of the Bible that you hold in your hands. How do you know uh, that, that it's not been changed? How do you know that it really is God's Word? How do you know that it really is accurate? How do you know that you can trust this? So, I want to bolster your faith that it's not myths, and it's not legends, and it's not fairy tales that have been changed, but it's definitely God's Word. You can count on it. You can rely on it. And you can do as the Bible says <clears throat> and have a reason for everyone who asks you about the hope that is within you. And so what I've done is, is we'll, we'll kind of put the Bible on trial, so to speak. We'll put the Bible on trial, because it always is on trial in, in the secular world and the, in the people around us. 
And I'm going to give you eight lines of defense, eight reasons why we can trust that the Bible is reliable and how we know that it is true and it's accurate. And they all start with the letter E to help you memorize them. And probably, hopefully, you'll be able to memorize at least, you'll be able to recite at least five or six of them from memory at the end of this message, if I've done my job here. So, what are those lines of evidence? Sorry, is this a little loud? Or is it just me that's a little loud? We Americans can be a little bit loud. The first E in your notes there is, is eyewitness testimony. <clears throat> now, eyewitness testimony is the strongest kind of testimony you could have in courts of law. If there's a trial going on and there's a murder case or whatever, eyewitnesses that says, yeah, I was there, I saw this happen, I, I heard him say this or whatever, that is very strong, strong testimony as opposed to circumstantial or hearsay or whatever. And <clears throat> the, the church was founded on the eyewitness accounts of what Jesus said and what Jesus did, including his resurrection. There were many, many eyewitnesses to the events of the New Testament that, that, that could be called to the stand, if you will, of testimony. For instance, in Acts alone, there were, there were 80 eyewitnesses listed in Acts and another 59 in the book of John. Um, you can see Luke chapter 1 and John, 1 John chapter 1, uh, Acts 1, 2 Peter um, chapter 1, all of those. And what they did is they appealed to the knowledge of their readers about the truths, about the events for which they were spoken. For, for instance, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he said this. He says, you all saw these things and you know it was true. When he was defending what happened on the day of Pentecost, he said, you all are aware. You all saw these things. You saw Jesus crucified and whatnot and, and, and risen from the dead. This was 40 days after the resurrection there or the crucifixion event. So, Eyewitnesses, if you're in a court of law, they, they screen their eyewitnesses. You had to have been in the right place, in the right time, and you had to be the right character, right? The writers of the New Testament, they were in the right place. They were right there in, in Jerusalem, in Palestine. They were at the right time. They wrote during the events or slightly after them, not centuries afterwards. They weren't there before the event. They were there at the right time. And, well, we'll talk about their character We'll talk about their motives. But if they were on trial, and they are, uh, they would pass these tests of screening for being in a court of law. One key is this, that they were, they were, they were knowledgeable, knowledgeable hostile witnesses, Jewish witnesses who were present, who would have refuted the disciples' testimony, right? For instance, they didn't deny that Jesus did miracles. They only said he does miracles by the hand of Beelzebub, by the power of the devil. But they didn't deny that he did miracles. They didn't deny that he rose from the dead. They said that, somebody, that, that there was an empty tomb. They only said somebody stole the body to which there was no evidence at all. What happened to the body if someone had stolen it? Um, so they appealed. They, they spoke these things. They rehearsed these things, recited them in the synagogues, in the open places. So there was hostile Jewish and hostile Roman witnesses that would have refuted their testimonies. We have nothing from the first, second, third century that refutes what the New Testament says, the acts that Jesus did and said and his resurrection. Um, and so that's, that's, that's pretty good, uh, you know, uh, that stands pretty well in a court of law. If it was in a court of law that there were hostile eyewitnesses that 
would have refuted things, but they didn't. So our, our first E of reliability is that they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, to the miracles of Jesus, to his sayings. They were eyewitnesses. They were second, third, fourth-hand accounts. The third E is, uh, excuse me, second E is extended testimony. What do I mean by this? Well, the disciples were with Jesus for 24-7 for about three and a half years. And what does this mean? Well, it wasn't just a momentary event that, that, that gets distorted. If someone goes in and knocks over a, a liquor store, you know, they rob a liquor store and you hear a bang and whatever, and somebody comes running out and people see that, their memories are, are because it happens in an instant, there are contradicting accounts. And uh, was he a tall guy, a short guy? Was he, uh, you know, Asian? Was he white? What was he? Because it happened so quickly and because there was so much emotion in it. But the accounts of Jesus' life, the disciples were with him 24-7. So what he did and what he said was extended over a while. Even the crucifixion event took three days, right? I mean, you contrast that with, say, John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy was a famous American president. It's not debated at all. His, his political policies. It's not debated at all um, when he died. It's not debated at all that he was a womanizer. All these are well known because of the extended testimony. What's debatable is what happened there in Texas when he got assassinated in his motorcade because it happened in an instant like that. So we can't claim that about Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is extended testimony. Extended testimony happening over three and a half years uh, when the disciples were with him. So, our first E was eyewitness testimony, okay? Eyewitnesses of the event. The second E, extended. It happened over an extended amount of time. Our third E is early testimony. It is the early bird that gets the worm, you might have heard. <clears throat> Maybe. There we go. Early bird that gets the worm. Well, it's the early stories that get the truth, that get the accuracy, that get the story right. There's been accusations that the, the New Testament's not true. It's not accurate. That the New Testament was act not actually written in the first century. It, the, the, these things were written in the second or even the third century. Well, it's easy to make an accusation. It's something else to prove that out, right? It's something else to give evidence of that. An argument is not proof of something. It's just that. So, what do we say about this? Having early written. Most, if not all, of the books of the New Testament were written before 70 A.D. Definitely not into the second century. Definitely not into the third century. They were written in the first century, when it, which is when the events of Jesus' life, miracles, resurrection, occurred. How do we know this? Well, let me start from an analogy with that. Let's say, for instance, that you're reading a biography of Edmund Hillary, and in this bi biography, it didn't mention anything. Let's say it was supposedly written in 1960, supposedly. It didn't mention anything of his ascent onto Mount Everest in 1953. And him getting his knighthood, becoming Sir Edmund Hillary in 1953. You'd think, why on earth would somebody write a biography of his life and miss the most important events of his life? I would guess this biography is written before 1953 because that wouldn't have happened yet, right? Or if you read a history of Christchurch and it mentioned nothing of the 2011 earthquakes, you'd think, oh, this must have been written before 2011. Do you follow? We can date things by monumental events that should be there. <clears throat> what about the New Testament? What big events should be there if it were written 
100 AD or 120 or whatever. Well, there's several things that should have been there. The destruction of the Jewish temple happened in 70 AD. Not a mention of it throughout the entire New Testament, throughout the entire Bible. It was a big event. Jesus alluded to it. He said, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it up again. He was obviously making a metaphor with his body. But several things revolved around that temple and the Jewish center of worship. Not a mention of it. Jerusalem was under siege in, in AD 69. Not a mention of that. Um, the, the martyrdom of some key scripture writers and people. Peter was martyred in AD 65. Paul in AD 64. James in 61. That was the half-brother of Jesus, the, the writer of the book of James. Um, we see nothing of them. We see recorded in Scripture the martyrdom of Stephen. Remember, he looked up into heaven, they stoned him. That was in about 36 AD. So the Scriptures were written after 36, but before, certainly, certainly before the 70s, probably before the 60s. Uh, many scholars believe that, that Matthew was written in the 40s, AD 40s, Mark in the 50s, Luke in the 50s AD. And you might think, well, gee, that's still about 15 years. Jesus died, you know, A.D. 33. So if you got something written in 40 or 45 or whatever, that's still 15 or so years. How do you know they got it right? How do you know that it wasn't changed? Uh, well, we can know that several ways. One, because the Jewish culture, the Hebrew culture on which the Scriptures fell was an oral culture. They were used to orally transmitting teachings and stories uh, and whatnot. Jewish rabbis, <clears throat> the students of Jewish rabbis were expected to memorize everything that their rabbi, their teacher had told them. The disciples of Jesus would have been no different. Jesus promised his disciples, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, I'll fill you the Holy Spirit. He will bring to your remembrance all the things that I said, all the things that I told you that were there. Um, <clears throat> people have incredible, some people have incredible memories. I mean, we can memorize songs, we can memorize big events. Some people can memorize whole chapters and verses or the whole Bible or the whole Quran. So it is certainly not impossible that within just 15 years, what Jesus said and did could have been rehearsed and recited and, and put into Scripture without error creeping in over that time. Um, so if you still think, well, 15 years seems like a long time, let's compare it to the time spans of some other accepted historical figures in their lives. So let's compare. <clears throat> the earliest writings we have about Muhammad is about 760. That's 125 years after Muhammad lived. 125 years after Muhammad had died, <clears throat> that's when we have the first writings of his. Buddha the first writings we have of the Buddha, and we accept these as historical figures and the major events of their lives, <clears throat> 350 years <clears throat> after his life. And I have water and it's warm and I don't know what's going on. <clears throat> Tiberius Caesar, the ruler that was the ruling at the time of Christ, 77 years after his life do we have the first record of him. Alexander the Great, 400 years after the life of Alexander the Great, do we have, did I miss something here? Oh, thank you, buddy. 400 years after his life, and we all know a lot about how he conquered the known world by the age of about 29 and what he did and, and all that he did by the writings of Arian and Plutarch. It wasn't until a couple of generations after this 
that legends began to creep in and accumulate about him. So we can be pretty sure that what we have written in the New Testament was certainly close enough to their events to be historically reliable and accurate. According to A.N. Sherwin-White, a historian, he says the, Herodot the writings of Herodotus enable us to determine the rate at which legends begin to accumulate. And the tests show that even two generations is too short a time to allow legendary tendencies to wipe out the hardcore historical facts. So our first E was eyewitness testimony. Our second E was extended testimony. Our third E was early. These books were written early, not second, third, fourth century. Our fourth E is embarrassing testimony. Any of you know anybody that likes to embellish their stories or even fabricate truths? Well, if they relay something to you that is very embarrassing or shameful, you probably believe them because you don't make stuff up that makes you look bad, right? That's the rule of historical writings. When any authors uh, are, are writing things of history, if they're writing things that are self-deprecating, if they're writing things that are embarrassing uh, to them or shameful, it's probably true because you don't make that kind of stuff up. Why would you if you're trying to make yourself look good? So, for instance, what do you mean? Well, the New Testament writers depict themselves as dim-witted several times, missing the point of what Jesus had said. For instance, in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, he says that the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They'll kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they said, but they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. In Matthew chapter 15, <clears throat> verse 15, Peter said, explain to us the parable, uh, uh, explain to us what you mean by that. And Jesus said, are you still so dull of hearing? Don't you see that whatever enters a man, the stomach of man, um, doesn't defile him, but, but, you know, he goes on to explain it to them. And then one more in Matthew chapter 16, 9, he says, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees. And it says they discussed this among themselves. They weren't understanding. It says, um, they asked Jesus, it is because, or they said amongst themselves, it's because we didn't bring any bread. That's what they thought it was meaning. So they, they, they were kind of dim-witted and missing the point of some of Jesus' key sayings. They were uncaring. They fell asleep twice on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. Twice they fell asleep on him. Um, Joseph of Arimathea was the one that gave Jesus a proper, proper burial in the tomb. He was of the Sanhedrin, the very same religious community that was responsible for getting Jesus crucified. And here you have a Sanhedrin member, Joseph of Arimathea, that took him off. Otherwise, they would have thrown Jesus in a mass burial pit with the rest of the, the criminals that were being crucified next to him. They, they, the, the disciples rebuked children. No, don't leave the children out. And Jesus said, no, 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 allow the children to come to me. Such belong the kingdom of heaven. And so they were pretty uncaring, and this is recorded clearly in Scripture. They were cowards. Jesus denied, excuse me, Peter denied Jesus three times, right? The disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples all ran away. Only the women remained, right? Even at the, 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 the tomb, the women had the bravery to go and try and anoint him on the third day. The disciples were huddled away uh, in a room, locked up in fear. Um, so... We see that, that there, was, there was fear. They were cowards. They, they were doubters. Um, there we are. They were doubters. Despite 
Jesus telling them several times he was going to rise from the dead, that the Bible says they were all doubting. They were not believing it when they were first told that Jesus had resurrected. Some were even doubtful after they'd seen him at the Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible says some of the disciples still doubted what they were seeing. And of course, you know, doubting Thomas said, no, unless I put my fingers in the holes of his hands, I'll not believe. And so all these things give us the indication that it was an embarrassing testimony. All these things don't put a good picture on the light of the New Testament authors. You don't make up embarrassing things about yourself if you're making it up, if you're lying, if you're fabricating. So our first E was eyewitness. They were there at the time. Second E is extended. Jesus was with them for three and a half years. Um, the third is that they were early, written in the first century. The fourth is they were embarrassing testimony. The fifth is the testimony was excruciating, excruciating testimony. A few years ago, there was a TV series called 24 with Jack Bauer. Anybody see that series? He was an anti-terrorist guy and he was trying to get the terrorists before their bombs exploded or whatever. And he would, he would torture some of the bad guys to get the information out, right? When you're under torture, when you're under duress, you're you're more likely to, to tell the truth. You're likely to come out with what's going on there. And the reality is many of the disciples, they died, many of the 12 died martyr's death. A martyr is someone who gets killed directly because of their faith and their beliefs. Some of them lived martyrs' lives for their testimony, but none of them had it easy after Jesus died and rose again. So if I were a defense lawyer defending the Gospels, I might ask a few key questions such as this. What did the New Testament writers have to gain by making up a new religion? What did they have to gain by making up these lies, if they were really lies, about, about this Jesus fellow? They were excommunicated from their, from their, their temples. Their, the religion of their ancestors. For thousands of years, Judaism had prevailed with the sacrifices. So they were excommunicated from the synagogues as heretics and blasphemers. Remember that Stephen was stoned to death for his testimony for Christ. Um, a few examples, James, the half-brother, was martyred in, in the, uh, the A.D. 60s, according to Josephus. Doubting Thomas, although he wasn't a writing gospel, uh, he didn't write any of the, the New Testament, uh, the, there's, there's lots of history that says he went to southern India, Kerala, India, and spent the rest of his life there talking about this resurrected God-man, Jesus Christ, and then and then being martyred there, flayed with knives there. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Um, John, who wrote John, the book of Revelation and, and his gospel, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. He didn't die a martyr, but he was imprisoned for what he was doing there. All he had to do was say, well, no, Jesus didn't really rise from that. No, this, we're just making this stuff up, and he could have left for that. So the testimony was excruciating in that way. They would have certainly had more motive to deny the resurrection and deny this than to affirm it. It doesn't make sense that anyone would make up a figure like Jesus Christ who was born in a, in a manger. He, wasn't, he didn't come as, as, as an earthly king. He died an ignominious death at the hands of, of the Romans. He was, the Messiah was supposed to throw off the, the Romans. He was no Greek hero. He was no Roman hero. He was the antithesis of a hero. Nobody would make that up. The only reason you'd report of it, if it was true, and you really did see him rise from the dead, and you wrote about it. Why would they die? And this is a, a, one of the main questions I, I, I ask people. Why would they die for a known lie? 
what they spoke about, what they wrote about. Now, let this sink in. A lot of people die for something they think is true. Terrorists, suicide bombers will die thinking that Allah is the one true God and Muhammad is his prophet and I'll be met in paradise with 70 virgins. Believing that's true, they go and do their, their terrible deeds. This is very, very, very different. For these New Testament writers to do what they had done, they would have known. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would have known if he was a fraud, if he were a liar, if he really didn't rise from the dead. The disciples would have known if he didn't rise from the dead. Why would they die for what they knew was a lie? If they were making this stuff up, I've never had anything close to a good answer on this question in all the times I've ever asked it of people. One of the key points to the validity of the New Testament and the, the, the authority of the eyewitnesses to the account. Why would you die or like John live your entire life and be prisoned at 89 years of age on the island of Patmos not recanting that testimony? You just wouldn't. Wouldn't make sense to do that. So, um, we have our eyewitness testimony. We have our extended testimony. We have early testimony. We have embarrassing testimony. We have excruciatingly painful testimony. Number six, we have exact testimony. The writers of the New Testament, especially Luke, they record with amazing accuracy. What do I mean? Well, and, and I, I don't know how many of you like things to be accurate. I do. I'm a teacher. I mean, sanguines like my wife that like to embellish stories and make it more interesting, that's all cool and stuff, but I want to know, was it really 100 miles or was it 80 or 70 or 60 or 50? Where does the, 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 the you know, stretching it out stop and the truth begin? I like just things to be exact and precise. And so the New Testament writers were exact in what they said. It lists 140 specific details Things like the, the names of places, the names of small towns and cities that got changed afterwards, after the first century or whatever. Political terms, <clears throat> environmental conditions, um, trivial details like wind directions and depths of waters in, in the Sea of Galilee, particular town names and customs, geographical and topographical conditions, circumstances that only befit eyewitnesses to the account, people that were actually there recording what they were. There's a classical scholar named Colin Hemer. He wrote a book called The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History. And in it, he goes to the books of Luke line upon line, uh, taking note of every single historical fact that had been verified by archaeology or non-Christian writings. And in that, he finds about 84 facts that are accurate just in Luke's writings, Luke and Acts. A guy named Craig Bloomberg did the same thing with the book of John. He wrote a book uh, called uh, The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel and he records 59 specific details that have been verified by archaeology, by writings that are outside of the Bible there. There's at least 30 people named, 30 characters are, are, are named uh, in the Bible, which were accurate. Luke names lots of, of dignitaries in him. He, he names Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great and Quirinius, who have all been proven out historically. In the late 19th and early 20th century, there was a Scottish archaeologist and a, and a classical scholar. His name is William Ramsey. He worked in the ancient Near East, which is now modern-day Turkey. Now, he had a very liberal education. His university, which was very liberal, they 
they looked dimly on the New Testament and the writings of Luke as non-historical. You can't trust those. It's not good history. So going into the field of archaeology and historiography, he went skeptical of Luke's writings, skeptical of the book of Acts and the book of Luke. <clears throat> he didn't remain so. By the end of his long, distinguished career, several things had occurred. First thing, he was honored with no less than nine honorary doctorates from prestigious universities around the world. He contributed so much to the field of archaeology and, and the his, history of the ancient Near East that he, he had written over 20 books. He was knighted by King Edward VII. And most important, important to our discussion, the more he unearthed there in the ancient Near East, the more he came to trust the New Testament's reliability in the book of Luke and Luke's, uh, Luke's writings, so much so that he became a Christian out of it. And he claimed this. He said, Luke's history is un, excuse me, unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. And he said this, Luke is an historian of the first rank and should be placed with the greatest of historians. So, how would those writers such as Luke have known about all the minute details, the, in, the intimate details of all these things if they weren't there in the first century, if they weren't there during the events, if they were written in the second or third century. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. The most obvious answer is that they were, sorry, my phone's about to go off. Let me kill this thing. Yeah. They were there recording it. And you know, someone once said that every time a spade is put in the ancient Near East, another page of the Bible is proven out by archaeology. Archaeology continues to confirm when there's certain things to say, well, what about this? We haven't found any evidence. I said, just wait. Just hold it in abeyance. And I wish I had a dollar for everything that they said, oh, no, this, this didn't happen in the Bible. This didn't happen in the Old Testament. This didn't happen in the New Testament. And then archaeology comes along and proves out, you know what? Or some inscription is found. For instance, 1961, um, there was evidence concerning Pilate. It was unearthed in Caesarea. Um, bearing his name and bearing his, his title, Pontius Pilate. In 1990s, the, the tomb of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest over the trial of Jesus. They, they found uh, archaeological evidence uh, uncovering uh, of him. The tomb under the, the church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, the tomb of Jesus, is, is, is in all probability that tomb that's under the church of the Holy Sepulchre there in Jerusalem. So what do we have? Eyewitness testimony, extended testimony, early testimony, embarrassing testimony, excruciating and exact testimony. These things were true. Our, our, our seventh E is ethical testimony. Where are we? There we go. There we go. Ethical testimony. How many of you know somebody that lies so much that if they told you it was sunny outside, you'd probably go outside and check to make sure there weren't floodlights out there? We've all known people that were like that. Witnesses in a court of law are not necessarily vetted by their eyesight. They're vetted by their character, their propensity to tell the truth and not have ulterior motives. And so the character of the New Testament writers is pretty much beyond reproach. They had very high ethical standards. <clears throat> they listened to and recorded the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus took Old Testament laws and rules and regulations. And, you know, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but if you hate your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. You've not committed adultery. Well, if you look at a woman to lust after, a higher standard of morality. They recorded that in Matthew. John wrote in the book of Revelation that all liars would have their place in the lake, Luke, in the lake of fire. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 that, that deceivers and liars, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. We contrast this with other religious books like the Book of Mormon, recording with Joseph Smith and stuff. Joseph Smith, uh, historically, even though the Mormons are coming out with the true history of the church, he was a, a, his whole family were, were swindlers and deceivers. Uh, there's no reason for us to believe the testimonies in the Book of Mormon. So we've got to look at the motives. What about the motives? What were the motives of the writers of the New Testament? Now, if they were salesmen trying to get rich off of something, we would be quite skeptical. Are you getting commission on this? Okay, that'll, that'll weigh in as to how much I believe you about this car or the stereo or whatever. But what about the motives of the New Testament writers? Well, they weren't after wealth. Paul said, you know, I've, I've, I've been a tent maker. I might not want to be a burden on any of you. So I've, you know, been a lay minister basically. He said he'd coveted no man's money. They weren't wealthy at all. They weren't after fame. They only got famous posthumously. In other words, after they died, they got that. Um, they, their goal was not to become famous, but to make Jesus famous. Um, they were not after glory. Peter, he said, I'm not worthy even to be crucified like my Lord. Let me be crucified upside down. And he was. Their motives were to praise and honor and glorify God. Their motives were to show and demonstrate the nature and character uh, uh, and the fruit of the Spirit. You know, they were the original, what would Jesus do in this situation crowd? They emulated their master and th their goal was to gain heaven. And so we don't find ulterior motives in them to, you know, write books and gain lots of popularity and money like some might today. So it's evident. It's obvious that the writers of the New Testament intended uh, for their things to be, writings to be accurate and describe everything literally and they had no wrong motive. Luke, he begins his gospel, both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He wrote them both. He begins them very similarly. Look what he said here. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So, Luke addressed both the book of Luke and the book of Acts to this most excellent Theophilus. And it was a, a title. He was probably some kind of Roman official. Paul addressed Felix and Festus as most excellent. They were Roman governors. And so, you don't write something like this to a Roman governor just to make up lies and falsehoods and stories. You'd be found to be a liar. You might be put in prison. You might be killed for that. And so we see that there was a motivation for him to keep the story right and not to make up and embellish things. <clears throat> so we got eyewitness. We got expanded. We got early. We got embarrassing, excruciating, exact, ethical. And lastly, our last D, I've actually got 10, but I won't put you through that. I know you're probably thinking about lunch, is existing, existing documents. The technical term is extant, like existent, extant manuscripts. Well, let me ask you about this question, because this is one that has come up in my discussions with other people. Um, of the earliest extant manuscripts, there are different 
take-home from this is this. Accurate reconstruction of the originals is much easier the greater number of the copies. By originals, I mean this. We don't have any of the original handwritten from Paul or Luke or any of the Old Testament. We don't have the original writings. We only have ma uh, copied manuscripts. A manuscript is any handwritten, um, handwritten you know, antiquity. They're written on papyrus or they're written on animal parchments like that. So errors are, are easy to spot. And the originals are easy to, to, it's easy to determine the meaning of the originals. And I'll use a familiar example to show you exactly what I mean. Um, how many have speech to text on their phone? Or you've seen speech to text, right? You speak it in and it will type the text. How many have gotten in trouble with that? You realize what you've sent and oh my gosh, did I really call my mom that name or whatever it might be? You've got to double check those things. Let's say that I was trying to do speech to text and I was driving, but Google got it wrong every time. Let's see if we can reconstruct the original without having any exact sayings of what it was. The first time you go, it says, beat me at Starbucks on Main Street at 2.30 on Thursday the 16th to correct your money. That's not right. I'll say it again. Meet Mr. at Starbucks on Main Street at Tooth Hernia hmm, on Thursday the 60s uh, to collect your money. Nah, that's not right. Meet Meet instead of Meet Me At. Meet Meet Starbucks on Mason Street at 2.30 on Thursday the 16th to connect your money. Ah, one last time. Meet me at Starving 
Hmm. On Main Street at 2.30 on Thursday the 16th to collect your bunny. Ha. Ah. How many of you think you could accurately reconstruct what I was trying to say with that? And you could easily spot those words that were an error, couldn't you? The more times I tried to do it, the more exact you would find yourself being. It's like if we had one watch in the room, is it really 10.35? And we began to compare all the watches, we could narrow in on the exact time, right? That's the way all these existing documents work for us. So, before I reveal how many manuscripts, how many of these copies we have, let's compare them. Let's, uh, let's see how many manuscripts exist from historically accepted figures and books. For comparison, we know about Caesar and the Gallic Wars. And there's only about 10 manuscripts that talk about Caesar and the Gallic Wars. Pluto, the Greek thinker, there's only about seven existing manuscripts of what Pluto said. Tacitus, the Roman historian. What's that? Pluto, Plato, same thing. You know what I mean. Plato, sorry. Plutocracy. Tacitus, there was the number one uh, Roman historian. There's, there's 20 existing manuscripts. Pliny the Younger, there's only seven existing manuscripts. Herodotus, the great Greek thinker, there's only eight. Euripides has about nine. Aristotle, the great uh, Greek, Greek philosopher and thinker and scientist, considered one of the greatest thinkers of all times. There's only about 49 manuscripts that detail his lives. <clears throat> the best non-biblical example is the Homer, uh, excuse me, the Iliad by Homer with 643 manuscripts of this. Now, how does the New Testament fare? How many do we have in the New Testament? Are you ready for your last blank? I think it is. The New Testament boasts a, an embarrassment of riches, a treasury of over 24,633 manuscripts. There's 5,500 Greek manuscript copies. There's 10,000 Latin and about 8,000 Coptic manuscripts there. There's another 36,000 quotes by the early church fathers with which we could piece together all but, you know, 10 or 11 verses in the New Testament. So, the the accusation that the Bible has been changed over time by rulers, by emperors, by popes, by everybody that got their hand up, by everybody that had a religious bent and wanted to change it, like the old game of Chinese whispers or telephone, I'll whisper in your ear, and then you'll take that message and whisper in the next, and by the time we get to 10 people, the message is absolutely distorted. That's a common accusation against the Bible, but it has no basis. The Bible was copied and distributed so vastly and so rapidly that wouldn't have had a chance to happen. We find it on the continents of Europe, India, uh, uh, Africa, and um, North Africa, and Europe, and of course Asia. If someone wanted to change the Bible, they would have had to get a hold of thousands and tens of thousands of copies in different locations of the world and change them all. That is not only not likely, that seems quite impossible to happen to me. And so the very existence of so many different copies of the New Testament let us know that it's accurate, that we know where the errors are, and that nobody could have changed it um, along the way. So, <clears throat> here's what I want you to do. I want you to see how many of the E's you can now remember. Put your hands like this, and we're going to do some counting. Okay? So put your hands like this. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Help you concentrate. And count them in your head. See how many of those E's you can get. They don't have to be in order. 
no pressure, but Simon's up to seven. <laughs> All right, open your eyes. How many got uh, four or more? Raise your hand. We got four or more. Good. How about five or more? All right, six, seven, woohoo, eight. You made my PowerPoint. It doesn't count. Good. Let's see if we can do them together. Somebody call one out. Maybe the first if we can get it. Eyewitness. Extended. Early. Embarrassing. Four is hard to do. Exact. Excruciating. Existing. Ethical, right? Ethical. Hopefully, the next time someone, you know, accuses the Bible of being, you know, written and changed, is only written by men, and how can we trust it? You'll remember some of these things and be able to talk about how we know that it's true, it's accurate, reliable, and hasn't been changed. And, you know, above and beyond all these empirical outside evidences, there's one more way that we can know, that you should know that the New Testament is true. And I'm going to let John Piper explain this. We can dim that light, and there we go. <clears throat> yes, we can trust the 66 books of the Bible. We can set our lives on these books. And the way we come to this conviction, most essentially, is by meeting Jesus Christ in the pages of this book. He stands forth from the pages in the story that has been written in a way that is self authenticating and compelling. You meet him, he befriends you, he reduces you to a humble brokenness, he reveals himself sufficient for you in his cross, he becomes beautiful and glorious in his living and dying and rising, such that you cannot not see the magnificence of the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. So there's a spiritual thing that happens to you, there's an objective reality that happens there, and that objective reality and this spiritual transformation meet, life happens, and you know that this is true. Now there are a lot of other objective historical bases and grounds, but when it comes down to an individual coming to deep conviction by which he can die, it has it happens at that level of seeing in through the word and the story to the person of Jesus Christ himself who then vindicates his word in its entirety. Hmm. So beyond the empirical, beyond the scientific and the rational, there was a relationship with Jesus who is the Word, the one who changes lives, the one who gives hope, the one who gives peace, the one who, who gives resurrection at the end of the day. Close your eyes and I'll close in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters here, and, and I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would help them recall and remember uh, some of the ease that we've gone over today. If there's anyone here, Lord, that, that doesn't know you, they haven't experienced you beyond just the written Word of God, but the relationship with the Son of God, I pray, God, that today would be the day they would begin. A simple prayer in your heart. Dear God, thank you for loving me. God, I've not always loved you in return. I've done and said wrong things and bad things, and I'm sorry for those things. Forgive me. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus the Word to be crucified on my behalf. I believe He died for me. I invite Jesus into my life, into my heart. 
Help me, God, by your Holy Spirit to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you said that